0: So, what you're saying is bourbon fans are probably the most annoying. <laughs> hey,
1: everyone, it's episode 320 of Bourbon Pursuit, the podcast featuring news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. And before we start today's episode, talking about what is craft whiskey by people in craft whiskey. Here's your weekly bourbon news update. Jim Beam recently celebrated the filling of its 17 millionth barrel of bourbon since Prohibition and remarkably noted that it's filling the 1 millionth barrel during the 18 months of the pandemic. This milestone barrel was filled, sealed, and signed by Fred No, their seventh generation master distiller. Now, moving on to bourbon release news. Jack Daniels is releasing its first age-dated whiskey in more than 100 years and it's gonna be 10 years old. The Jack Daniels Tennessee whiskey 10 year old bottle design features a hand drawn iteration of the original cartouche and this will be bottled at 97 proof and priced at $70. Well, back on episode 295, it was a round table and we discussed when does craft whiskey stop becoming craft whiskey? Well, the internet is full of opinions and we heard every last one of them. Many of whom said, why don't you get some real craft distillers on the show and ask them? Well, we took your advice and did just that. We're joined by Becky Harris of Catoctin Creek and Alan Bishop from Spirits of French Lake and talk about really what craft means to them. We discuss their thoughts on distillers and their sourcing, if they source, and also kind of how are they overcoming that craft stigma to really set themselves apart. With that, enjoy today's episode, and now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char.
2: I'm Fred Middick, and this is Above the Char. This idea comes from William on Twitter at WillBram1, with the actual number one, on November 8, 2020, so I'm a little slow to getting around to it, but he uh, brings up the idea of the rise of smoke wagon influence on social media on craft distilleries. Now, I think this is a really great topic, one that could actually be a a Bourbon Pursuit roundtable. We've kind of talked about these things in the past, about how uh, social media can have a real influence for a brand and everything. And we, of course, uh, have had conversations with Aaron from Smoke Wagon and, you know, quite bluntly, you know, Aaron is a personal friend. And so I talk with him, you know, on a regular basis. Um, Look. Social media is, if you are a brand, it's much more enticing to build your own following than to pay a PR firm, an advertising firm and all these types of firms when you can do it yourself. You know, the the power of social media, it allows people to stand out, whereas before, you know, they'd have to spend ten grand uh, to get in front of you. You know, so social media gives you instant access to people that you would not otherwise have so that's that's the beauty of it the downside of it is that there's a lot of fake noise going on and so i think we've all kind of gotten used to influencers and i mean that's part of it but in terms of like a brand and being able to you know stand out on social media and have an impact on there you got to have a story that resonates. And I think that's why Smoke Wagon, you know, it does so well is that Aaron resonates with people talking about, you know, what he likes and smoking a cigar by the pool and talking about uncut, unfiltered, small batch today. Woo! You know, I mean, that, that gets people excited and that taps into what we've seen into the vein of uh, the Facebook groups. It taps into the enthusiasm. And generally, that comes with haters. So the minute that you get people that like you, you got people that hate you. And so there's like this huge back and forth of um, of social media in like understanding how to make it work. I look at I look at things very differently. But when I see a brand and, you know, I can see all the stuff that they're doing and they're being, you know, they're taking the photos with their iPhone versus like, you know, having a major production around it. I like that. To me, that's more real. That's more genuine. But so that's what I look for. I look for the like the real stuff. And and you can never go wrong with having a puppy or a kitty on top of a barrel. That will make me smile every day of the week. But that's gonna do it for this week's uh, above the char. And if you're like William and you wanna you wanna tweet at me, just look for me at Fred Minnick. Just search for my name Fred Minnick, or you can write me on fredminnick.com and hit me up with your ideas for Above the chart. That's going to do it for this week, folks. Be safe out there. Cheers, everybody.
1: It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to noseyourbourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium, hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof, and the flavoring grain for this one Welcome everybody to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit the official podcast of Bourbon. Kenny, Ryan and Fred here again talking about a particular subject that we caught a little bit of heat for on a previous episode just talking about well what do we think craft whiskey is and what do we we do what we do best. We give our opinions and then we let the masses have at us and they sure as hell did. There was a lot of disagreements on what they thought that uh, they said, why are you podcasters talking about what craft whiskey is like? Why don't you get some people that actually produce craft whiskey to answer that? And as Ryan said before we started recording, that's right. That's probably a good decision. We should probably yeah, do that. We should have done that a long time ago. But to be fair, it is
0: hard to, to find what is a craft whiskey. There's not really a true... Like, I mean, there's a definition, but it's like pretty vague and pretty big. I think it's like 750,000 proof gallons of production a year, which is quite a bit, Uh, you know, so, yeah, so I don't know exactly. So I'm excited to get schooled on it. That's what we do best. You know, we're the dumbasses that show up and learn from the best.
2: Yeah. uh, To that, to that definition, one of the things is that, uh, that at least no more than 50% of the DSP is, uh, you know, can't be a producer of distilled spirits whose combined annual production of distilled spirits from all sources exceeds 750,000 proof gallons. So they're basically saying you can have, like, a small partner, like Constellation can own 30% of your brand, but if you if they own 51% of it, then you're no longer a craft distiller. And that's a definition out of ACSA, the American Spirits um, Organization, Mer- American Spirits
1: Council. I'm so glad we have Fred here to kind of like wing these things off because... You had it right,
4: Fred. It was exactly what our definition was.
1: (laughs) So there we go. You've you've heard some of the voices. Let's go ahead and introduce our guests and dive right into it. So today on the show, we have Becky Harris, who is the head distiller at Head Distiller at Catoctin Creek. And we have Alan Bishop, the head distiller at Spirits of French Lick. Everybody, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. So kind of before we get into it and really into the the, the big subject matter of, uh, of this, I, I, we kind of want to know a little bit about your past and your history and sort of what got you here. The, the kind of two to three minute elevator pitch and uh, Becky, I'll sort of let you go first.
4: All right. So um, my husband and I founded our distillery back in 2009. Um, I'm on bourbon pursuit, but I pretty much just make rye. I don't actually make any bourbon um we don't we,
1: discriminate
0: uh, we can we can do
2: hold on kitty <laughs> get her off the show Kenny. it's over
0: <laughs> do we have a backup somewhere no.
4: <laughs> all the time people do you have a bourbon well no <laughs> but you know one of the things is education across the board but yeah so scott and i have been making virginia rye since 2009 and i'm also president of the american craft spirits association so uh you know, I've I've definitely been involved in the definition discussion of what is craft. So it'll be it'll be a really fun uh, discussion. I'm looking forward to it.
3: Great. Alan, yourself? Um, yeah. So pretty stereotypical uh, Southern Hoosier, I guess. I grew up in, in distilling illicitly and then um, found myself in a position where I had to get a job doing this legally before my uh, my now wife left. So,
1: <laughs> tell me one story about the illicit side. That's always got to be funny.
3: Um, so we, at one point in time, we had a hundred and fifty gallon pot still set up on the farm, um, and it was outside. Pretty much everybody locally kind of knew about it. But uh, we had a uh, marijuana flyover more than once or twice in the area because we had a couple greenhouses set up, right? And uh, so the guys, they're low enough they can see exactly what's going on, and you know they don't they have bigger problems in Southern Indiana than, than somebody running a little, little still. But, uh, I remember distinctly like, of course I'm freaking out cause they're, you know, they're right above the house and everything. And, uh, they just wave, Hey, how's it going? You know, flew over, <laughs> never heard anything from it. Like, I mean, what the hell was I going to do? I'm not going to be able to pick this 150 gallon pot up and move it somewhere. So, you know, you're just, uh, you're just, you're just sitting there waiting on it to happen. So, but that's, that's a pretty, pretty good background. I mean, my family has always been involved. Um, and that to some extent or the other, tobacco farmers, et cetera. Um, and then got on at Copper and Kings, was there for a couple of years, and that was a good way to get my foot in the door, but I wanted to get back over here on on what I call the right side of the river, because obviously being from Indiana, <laughs> and uh, play into the history of distilling in Indiana, so got on at Spirits of French Lick. Um, we started that, started distilling in April 2016, and uh, yeah, it's it's been good the past couple of years for sure. Things have, uh, have gone much better than I expected that they would in the short amount of time that we've been in business. So,
1: well, congratulations to yeah. both of you. I know business ex- ex- is exploding. You Can't be too upset with that for sure. So let's kind of uh, let's get into it. So I know when the last times that that we had talked, we had we had taken Fred's formal de- definition of what is craft whiskey by the book, and we kind of broke it down into different ways of looking at this, because you'll talk to people like Shapira's at Heaven Hill, and they'll think, they'll think that they're craft whiskey. And don't be wrong, it, it is a craft at the end of the day, even though that some people might have some computers running it, some people have some actual people running it. It is what it is. So kind of getting into this a little bit, you know, Becky, I'll, I'll kind of throw it over to you first, is, is when we think of like, what is craft whiskey beyond just the definition, where does that sort of, where does, where does your head go?
4: My head goes here. So as a consumer, when I'm out looking for what I want to patronize, whether it be, um, you know, uh, the farmers or brewers or whatever, I'm really interested more to me, it's more about supporting small independent. I think there's, you know, economic arguments to be said for from a business standpoint, that if you have a more distributed supply chain, if you will, that money tends to stay in the communities and filter down more closely to the people who are doing the work as opposed to shareholders and multinational corporations. So my my personal philosophy, and maybe I'm a little more, um, I have the, that tend of philosophy is that I don't necessarily want to spend as much money at places where the money doesn't stay close to the community. So I tend to go for just smaller businesses. and that's one of the things I find and you know, I've been living that through this pandemic is if you want something to stick around, whether it be a restaurant, a knitting shop I knit, um, or anything else, you've got to go spend your money there. If you want to have a variety of whiskey producers across the country, you need to spend money there. And so for me, it's never really been about the quality of the whiskey, although you have to have a good product. Otherwise, you can might be selling the first bottle, but you probably won't sell the second and the third to the same people. And so I think that there is a role for me in thinking about it really as small, independent producer. I think craft is kind of a holdover from... Craft beer, right? It's kind of like that parallel where craft beer started because big beer sucks and big beer is boring. Is you know the thoughts behind it, and I think that kind of was just like okay, now it's a holdover from that that kind of went into distilling. Even though it was never a problem with you know Heaven Hill and and Brown Foreman. it wasn't like they were producing bad whiskey. Nobody was producing bad whiskey, but people started to get interested in what are different things that can be done. How can they be done in a, you know, in a locality, in a region where things are sourced locally? And where does that bring the product and where does that bring the flavor to go? And kind of hearkening back to a time when there were, you know, 13,000 distilleries in the 13 colonies. And that was the history of this country. We had tons of tiny producers. It's actually really weird that we have, you know, so few for so long. So I just think it's kind of that that cycle. And I think that's where consumers are coming from, is they want to go out. They want to explore whether they're traveling somewhere or whether they live somewhere. They want to go and explore what's available there and find something new. And share it with their friends, and hopefully they enjoy it and they want to have more of it.
1: Well, that's one way to really kick it off. I mean i <laughs> I, I, I got I got some ways I want to break that one down, but you know, yeah. Alan. But Alan, a lot of points there. Yeah. So, Alan, I kind of want to push it over to you as well, and and we'll start we'll start kind of breaking these down as some uh, some smaller segments here. But you know, just the idea of craft beyond the gen- general definition. What would think? What does it really mean to you?
3: So I, I, I agree with everything that Becky just said there, but I, I tend to be a little bit more philosophical in a lot of ways, I think, when it comes to the way that I think of craft. And, and it's very much the same way that she's talking about with the local thing and and particularly the old distilleries. So um, the first thing that I'll say is that all the all the big guys make great product. There's not one of them that doesn't make a good product. And I've, I've joked many times that um, there was a time when Heaven Hill should have just went ahead and put a Heaven Hill tax on my check. And taking it just like Disney does because I have a kid, um, you know, and I don't I, I say that with no shame whatsoever, uh, for sure. But I think that we're harkening back to something much older here and something completely new at the same time. So the older thing is that that pre prohibition thing where distilleries were part of a local food shed. They were part of a local watershed. They're uniquely tied to the community. Um, I think the pandemic really proved that that's the case, especially with the hand sanitizer thing one way or the other and curbside pickup, all of that good stuff. Um, but the other part of that is the more modern side of it, which is, you know, bourbon went through, and rye, everything really went through this. This sort of, um, when industrialization hit in the 1870s, everything kind of shrank down to a spectrum, right? And then after Prohibition hit, the spectrum got smaller. But there's a million and one different ways to make these products, right? And so for a craft distiller, for me, I think the mentality of a craft distiller is Let's leave some of the efficiency issues uh, off the table and focus on flavor and focus on what those local flavors are and what you can do in a very unique way. Um, and you're probably not doing anything new. I mean, there's, there's likely not any of us doing anything really new that uh, farm distillers or small industrial distillers in the 1800s weren't doing. Uh, but people are looking for something different. They want, they want their old forester, but they also want this because it's in a different direction and palates are expanding you know in a major way i mean even even culturally if you look at the the food movement uh the local movement but also you know some of the the more um unique uh, uh cooking that happens in the united states nowadays mixing different cultures and different types of things together uh people are really ready for something new on the palate and and again i love those big guys but you know kentucky bourbon is a spectrum it's was a very small spectrum for a very long time. And now that's expanding again, to what it should have been and should have stayed in my opinion.
1: So there's, there's a common thread that you had both talked about, and that's the ability and you, Alan, you had said watershed and having your kind of local community around it. Do you see bigger distilleries as kind of hurting that ability to kind of create a cult following that happens in your backyard? Because people are, you know, they're getting into bourbon and they just go to the shelves and they see the old forest or they see whatever, and then they don't really know what's there in their backyard. And and maybe you don't get an opportunity to win that customer, win that share.
3: There's a little bit of that, but it's not so much the distilleries doing it. It's the alcohol lobbies within the States, right? Because they don't, you know, the alcohol lobby and, and even the distributors, they're not necessarily worried about you as a craft distiller and whether or not you're well represented in your backyard. You know, they want those uh, those easy checks and those big checks. You know, they're not worried about what little piddly incentive that, you know, some podunk distillery in, in nowhere, Indiana can provide for them. They're worried about that big money. And I'm sure that obviously the bigger distillers, at least, you know, I'd say on the marketing side, are probably involved in that to some extent. But uh, I think more than that, it's definitely the lobbyist as well as uh, distribution concept in general.
4: Yeah, and I would agree with that and I would add to it. I would say, you know, one of the things with the 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 way that the system is set up, the you know, the three-tier system does a great job of moving large amounts of products to people in a economically efficient way, right? So it works really well when you're moving 50 or 60 cases a month through a given state. But it doesn't necessarily work very well when you're getting started from a small distillery, you know, portion, and you just are moving small numbers. It doesn't make sense, and that's really where there's small distilleries struggling to kind of break through in new markets because they're they don't make sense for a lot of distribution to carry, and that's really where. I mean, personally, from an advocacy standpoint, my passion is right now is in, in you know, Kentucky has made big strides in that recently with allowing distilleries to ship direct to consumer. And if you're talking about the kind of stuff that I'm spending my time working on as I talk to people around the country and to lawmakers around the country, it's going to be about we need direct to consumer across the board. We need parity with wine nobody's saying wine business isn't doing great. There are wineries in every state now and they're small businesses and they have followings and it's because they can connect with their customers. And, and it's so difficult as a small producer to have people come visit you and they want to ship something home and you can't tell them you can't, you're not allowed. And, you know, that's, I think, you know, when you want to talk about the, things that are making things difficult. It's not really the big guys that are doing that to us. It's actually the structures that are built to move alcohol through this country is really the biggest thing that gets between customers and accessing unique spirits around the country.
2: So I, I, will, I will jump in and say that, uh, first of all, that's the first time anyone's ever referenced a three-tier system as, quote, beautiful on this podcast, <laughs> uh, we, we do a good job of trying to tear that down a few pegs, don't yeah, we? That, oh, yeah that that was that was pretty fascinating, <laughs> and you know, uh, Alan Becky, I think you did a great job kind of talking about the business uh, the side of it and, uh, and a lot of it. Now, coming at it from a consumer pr- perspective, I, I don't think it's the system, Becky, that keeps you know the craft whiskey side down a little bit. I think it's the fact that there's so much young whiskey that comes into the market at a high price. And people do not, um, sometimes the whiskey's bad. Sometimes it's overpriced. But a couple things. First, both of your whiskeys are fantastic. I've picked Toctin Creek Barrels. Um, Alan, I mean, if you've not seen my Spirits of French Lick reviews, just Google them. I mean, I'm very high on Spirits of French Lick. But these are notes that are common. Um, green oak and like kind of like uh, moldy grain, you know, from bad fermentation. These are notes that are very common in craft whiskey, and I, I feel like that that is where we have where we have seen a lot of the discussion in for consumers is they taste one craft whiskey from a first release and they're just ruined forever, and the I know it's things are getting better, and I. But there is a there is a bad reputation or a bad stigma when it comes to craft whiskey, especially with uh, with newer brands. And I try them all. I'm honest about all of them. But how do we how do we get past uh, that stigma that's been you know kind of there for the past decade? Or
0: or should there be a screening process before these guys could even?
4: Oh, it's the same in beer and wine. I've gone around and I've been drinking around in different places. And yeah, there are places where their wine wasn't my favorite. I think you kind of have to look at that as that's what the market is going to shake out. You know, I don't say, you know, this is all going to be representative of a single thing by that. I think one of the Parts of what I find interesting about tasting whiskeys and going around is that you're exploring and seeing what's there. Now, not everything is going to be my cup of tea. I've had some 20 year old whiskeys that aren't my cup of tea. And I personally would be like, yeah, I don't know that I'd want to release that. But it's, you know, it's somewhat, some of it to me is a little bit about I think there's people tend to paint everything with kind of a broad brush when it comes to it. So it's like, I had this terrible craft whiskey. So now I'm not going to, you know, try craft whiskeys anymore, because that one down there that I went to wasn't any good. You know, I just always encourage people just go explore more. I don't think you can really tell people, well, you shouldn't be a lot, you know, able to release your whiskey. (laughs) And, uh, you know, but it is, I think that's the kind of thing where then, yeah, it can cause problems. But I think that's, kind of the market has to take care of that. I don't know what you could do otherwise. I mean, you know, market's going to take care of some of the big brands that come through that are flavored whiskeys that are pretty disgusting too. And, you know, nobody's saying that whoever, and I don't even remember who it is that made some pie hole or whatever the flavored whiskey of the month is, shouldn't be allowed to release any
3: new whiskeys I'll, till they I'll, get that I'll, out of there. I'll say that they shouldn't be allowed to release those whiskeys. <laughs> Well, I've, I've been as long op- as
1: Ryan gets the job to try every craft distiller out right. there and, and decide whether they get, get the release. <laughs> yeah, or not.
3: I've been pretty opinionated on, on this thing for a long time. And I think Fred and Kenny, you guys have probably seen some of those posts. I know Fred has for sure. I think that what Becky says is right. The market will bear that out. But for American distilling to improve and it does need to improve on the craft level, that includes me one million percent. If I'm not learning something every day, I don't need to be doing this period. Right. And I like bad reviews as much as I like good reviews because I learn something from them as long as they're constructive. So I think that we're, we're at, ultimately we're talking about the same thing we talked about in question number one. So again, prohibition and industrialization destroyed this opportunity for people to learn this art and this craft. The only way to learn this art and this craft for the longest time was to do it illegally or be related to somebody that could get you into the distillery and get you into the right place. Right. And so you're seeing something happening now. You're seeing craft improving for a couple of reasons. One, nobody likes negative reviews unless they can learn from it. And but they take that and they learn it. and They, they learn something from it. Right. Two is because all the distillers that came into this early on in the craft. You know, they put out some bad product, and I'm guilty of this even with some of my friends. Sometimes I'll go to liquor store, see their bottle on the shelf, be like, I should buy that, but I've been burned before for $50 something, $60, $70. Eh, I'll just go buy, you know, Heaven Hill, Old Forest, or whatever, right? But those craft distillers that were early on didn't know what they were doing necessarily, never distilled a drop in their life until they, they found the money to start a distillery. They've now had multiple years to be able to learn their craft. The third thing that's happening is now you're actually starting to see people who have had the passion. To learn this art at home, getting hired into craft distilleries, and being able to scale up what they've mastered at home in the same way that home brewers were able to get craft brewing up and going, and that shows a market improvement in craft whiskey over the past couple of years. Um, certainly, there's a lot of bad stuff out there. I'm not going to lie about that. You know, I, there's a lot of times I think, obviously, even our distillery could have done better with some of the things that we did, but it's it's getting there. But it's going to take really. Honestly, it's going to take a generation or two before it really, really gets where it needs to go because you've got so much learning to do. And, you know, these guys that are out there doing consultations for craft distilleries, a lot of them have never worked with a pot still. They've only worked with continuous columns. They don't really understand that art. It's two different things. It's night and day from one another. And just because you can run a column doesn't mean you can run a pot. Just because you can run a pot doesn't mean you know how to tune a column. Interesting.
4: And, And oh, and one other thing is like the overpriced thing. Let's, let's be real. The big guys are pricing their whiskey below what it could bring market on a lot of expressions because that's why the secondary is running so hot for a lot of expressions or things are priced high on a lot of expressions is because the demand is outstripping the supply of a lot of these things. And so maybe they're not even raising their prices to where the market should be for them. Mean small producers don't have the economies of scale that the big guys do, so you know saying something's overpriced well yeah it's priced high, but it's priced appropriately for what it costs a small producer to make
2: yeah we we talk about that all the time, and one of the i think one of the greatest victories that you know craft distillers can bring to the table right now is the uh is the how the big distillers have begun to imitate what you all have been doing since you know since the uh, early 2000s like four grain i'm a sucker for four grain Uh, i think that's been from the penelope to the spirits of french lake i'm loving this trend but i've not seen it done very well outside of craft distillers most of the big distillers can't get it down.
3: <laughs> that has a lot to do with the column still as well. And that's that's some more of that technical stuff that never gets talked about. The column still is just not designed to pull out those and it makes good whiskey. It makes good three grain whiskey for sure, but it's not designed to pull out those uh those unique oils that you get out of a pot still.
0: So talk talk about some of the flexibility and like benefits of being a craft distiller. We talked about like some of the downsides, you know, with cost scale, distribution, stigmas. But what's what's some of the things you can hang your hat on or the positive sides of being in a craft whiskey
3: you get to be super pessimistic so, yeah, you, so you, there's
0: you, nowhere you to get go
4: but, uh, roller coaster yeah. mood Right, <laughs> it's the best or the worst thing you can do as any independent business person will tell you given the day but i i mean i think that y- you have to kind of find your way to when you're building your your brand and you're building your distillery it's essentially your part of it is your story and what is your story who are you as a distiller and figuring that out it's a journey and you know that's something that people connect with in a different way than they may connect with old forester than they may connect with these big brands because it's not as close to as connected to the people who make it And so, you know, over the past years that I've been doing it and my husband has been doing it, it's uh, some of it is who are we and what are we doing and why are we doing this and what's our focus? Because the first few years, you're just trying to keep your head above water. And then you've got to try to get to a point where you're like, okay, now I have to, what's my vision? You know, it, I think that there are people who can come into that with that vision, But they're not the people who are scraping by. They're the people who have a lot of money. And there are a lot of people who come into this with a lot of money. And they can come into this with a beautiful marketing plan that's laid out with the story in it, the way it's going to play. But I think you'll find that a lot of people who got into this maybe as a second career where you're just kind of winging it where you didn't have huge money behind you you're kind of there there's a different path there and sometimes that shows in a different
0: way yeah true story versus a manufactured story right something that's real people can connect with because all of life is discovery journey you know finding yourself and and people relate to that you know they can ad- identify with those stories in themselves and that's that's what i enjoy about smaller businesses and and the people that run them is that they they're truly incredible people and have great just stories to share and live by.
3: People love just the you know, the characters and the stories as you guys are mentioning. That's that's a huge part of it. But one of the other advantages of being a craft distiller too is that again and I made the joke, you know, you get to be super pessimistic. So like when something goes right, it's it's awesome. Right, it worked out. It worked out, right? It's, <laughs> Wait till tomorrow. It, it, right, it's it's very it much, too good to be true. It's very <laughs> much a ready fire aim philosophy when it comes to craft distilling. A lot of times, I think, you know, but the good thing about that is that 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 allows you to you're not necessarily. We certainly didn't start out catering towards the traditional bourbon drinkers, right? The fact that we started to get some traditional bourbon drinkers coming in that was that was that bonus. That was that pessimism playing off, like, oh well, wow, that worked out. That was okay, you know. But we didn't go out of our way to try to to draw those traditional drinkers to it. It just kind of happened. And certainly we're not everybody's flavor and that's fine too. And sometimes that's the fun of it in this industry, right? Is that you can, you can poke fun at it a little bit. You can have some fun with it. You can be a little sarcastic about it. You can be tongue in cheek about it. You know, as long as you can make fun of yourself while you're doing it, you know, I always, always tell people we're not, um. we're not in the business of curing cancer here. We're making alcohol. It should be fun. If it's not fun, then I'm gonna have to go find something else to do. And the only thing I'm qualified to do is dig ditches. So,
1: but but if it okay. could cure cancer, that'd be, it'd be, mm-hmm. be a hell of a two bird kind of thing, right there.
2: Right. So both of you all have uh, get uh, a, occasional an occasional MGP product. Will maybe dig at your craw a little bit. When anytime someone sees Spirits of French Lick, they automatically assume that it's from MGP. Uh, When someone sees uh, or tastes Catoctin rye, they're accustomed to the MGP style of rye. How do you all feel about the sourced whiskey game and how it impacts you all in the store and with consumers?
1: the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com. That's P L U S dot com and use code Pursuit at checkout for $5 off your subscription.
2: How do you all feel about the Sourced Whiskey game and how it impacts you all? in the store, and with consumers.
4: It was funny because this was like since day one, right? Everybody would say, and I mean, people who knew, you know, it's like this doesn't taste like rye because <laughs> it wasn't, you know, a 95.5 or the, you know, it wasn't it wasn't one of the MGP recipes that people were used to tasting. And for a while there, what was really interesting to me was I remember even like 2013, 2013, Um, 12, you know, I would go to Jack Rose in DC and talk to Bill Thomas. And he'd be like, it gets to the point where he could just open a bottle and he can tell before he ever has to taste it, that it's MGP from the nose just right away. And he'd gotten so many of them that he was like, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of get excited about stuff. But now, now I get to go out there and I can taste rice all over. And guess what? What I always told people is that rye isn't a one thing that it tastes like. Rye can be a gamut of things, just like single malt, just like bourbon. It can be a whole palette of flavors. And that's what's freaking exciting me every day, is going out and tasting new ryes, because I'm a, I'm a rye girl. And I love tasting them, and I love that they're different. And I love that tasting a Texas rye and a California rye And, you know, Pacific Northwest rye, they're all different than my Virginia rye. And that's fun as hell. And you want to talk about what we get that's really cool about being a small and independent producer is going out and tasting your friend's stuff and finding out what it tastes like. And, you know, that's something you're not going to find at the big guys because they can't source that way. That's just not how it works. They source globally. And they may do small releases that may speak to those things, but that's never going to be their $25 bottle of bourbon that they have on the shelf that everybody compares our price to. So our connection is really has to be to a place and time. And that's really what keeps me excited about it. And it keeps me excited about where we're going as an industry.
3: Very good. What about you, Alan? For us, MGP is kind of a double edged sword because, you know, being in in, uh, southern Hoosier land over here, uh, you know, MGP kept the lights on for the rest of us, you know, until the state got their uh, got their issues with alcohol figured out or are currently figuring them out, hopefully. Um, But, yeah, we get that a lot. You know, you're in Indiana, so you must be sourcing from MGP. And I've gone out of my way, even though I love and respect MGP, to make sure that everything we do is completely completely differentiated from mgp we don't clone anything that they do whatsoever um i'll be the first to admit that it's not a knock because i like a lot of their stuff but 95.5 is not my thing to me it has a lot of like black cherry it reminds me of like robitussin when i was a kid i get why certain people like it i just it's not my thing so i purposely try to avoid that at all costs so but, you know, again, there's a lot of respect there. And, and the better that MGP does, the better that the state of Indiana overall does. And I think the more that Indiana gets looked at as a distilling state. So, you know, I have a lot of respect for that, without a doubt. Um, as far as the sourcing stuff, I, I don't have any problem with anybody sourcing things. But now it does the 95.5 rye out there everywhere, the 21 rye, all that stuff. You know, there's so many of them using that. And I, for me as a distiller and a consumer, I find it a little bit boring. Now, I think what guys like uh, Penelope are doing taking those different component whiskies, and that's what those MGP mash bills were, were components, blending them in unique ways, that I think is cool. That I think is interesting. I would like to see that happen with somebody using exclusively craft distillers to do that. Go to your craft distillers and find, you know, some odd mash bill that they have a few barrels of off in the corner and they don't know what the hell they're going to do with it because they don't know how to label it for the TTV or whatever. And they have no market for it. Buy from five or six different craft guys and put out a, a special bottling of something, you know, once a year or something that, that highlights those craft guys in uh, the same way that Penelope's doing it with, you know, the MGP Mash Bills or whatever, you know, that's out there. I th- I think that that's a that's a cool thing. And you just something- gave
1: us an idea. I was like, yeah, <laughs> send around a few barrel samples. Free Who knows? Idea, we might, guys. we have, oh. yeah, I was like, we might have a new business plan here. end into this thing.
3: <laughs> Listen, I I do take uh, gratuitous uh, checks for ideas. If you want to write me one, I I have no shame.
1: <laughs> What's your Venmo? We'll go ahead and put that in there.
3: <laughs> Five bucks to the Hoosier to get a better internet connection.
1: Uh, it's all good.
0: <laughs> so so Alan, you were talking about how uh you know you weren't set out to attract bourbon drinkers and whatnot um but you're not too far from bourbon land you know bourbon you're what an hour and a half from louisville and how much has that the popularity of bourbon benefited you guys you know people coming in either driving through indiana or you know they're in louisville it's not too far uh talk about that how that's helped you and vice versa with, with becky if how the bourbon boom has helped her as well
3: that's, it's definitely helped a lot. I mean, it, it's, it's a weird thing. And the trajectory with my career coming from the home distilling side, because it seemed to me like the crap, the, well, not even just crap, but the really the, the major part of the spirits boom in the past 10 years kind of happened at the same time that there was a certain TV show that Fred's been on a couple of times got popular too. So the moonshine thing got popular at the same time that the craft distilling thing started going, which I don't think is coincidental, ironically, but um, being in, and you know, on, what in Kentucky you would call the wrong side of the river over here and not having, you know, people who've written about the history, <laughs> etc., it's helped out a lot in that bourbon got up and going, but you almost have to keep that momentum going, right? So I have to constantly be researching the history because I almost have to I almost have to to bourbon people justify my existence in southern Indiana because people think that the river is somehow <laughs> magic. And nothing good can come from the north side of the river because they don't they don't know the history of the Ohio Valley in general. They know, you know, from the, the Louisville side going south. And that's that's what they know. So we they don't
0: we all just get a, the weather an hour or two different from each other. So right. it's yeah, you know, it's either to the north or south or, or to the east as Becky is, you know. We get it just an hour before her. So.
3: The good thing about bourbon people is that they're, they're uniquely interested in things. They're willing to try different things. You know, that they may, may be skeptical until they try something. Then they go, OK, yeah, that works out. And they have they have uh, g- generally they tend to have a little bit of a sense of humor. So I long ago figured out that if I can't get through to somebody with being more serious with the history or those sort of things, um, I can make a little bit of a joke at the very least.
4: The, uh, the governor, the last previous governor of Virginia used to like to say that he always liked to tell the governor of Kentucky that when bourbon was invented, Kentucky was Virginia. So <laughs> that's a, uh, you know, that's always a thing you can say. As far as the rye part, I what I do is I just encourage people to taste it. You know, I'm like, if it's not your thing, that's fine. It, but I think it's really about exploration. So You know, sometimes we find people who's like, this doesn't taste like rye I've had before, you know, and because when you think about the big ryes that are out there, they do have a particular flavor, whether it be an MGP style with the cherry or, you know, some of the more that have more of this dill flavor that comes in. And you know what? You don't judge a bourbon just by the name bourbon because it can be any kind of different flavor profile same for scotch. And so it's just about getting people curious. And I think it's a little easier than it used to be just because there's a lot more rye out there than there was back in 2009,
3: 2010. That's that's one of the methods that, that we use to throw this in real quick. We use, um, the only traditional mash bill we do is a weeded mash bill. But, you know, with the popularity of those weeded mash bills, Um, you know, just putting our, our weeded mash bill up, even, even if it's a blind or a non-blind, it doesn't matter one way or the other, but putting it up against any of those weeded mash bills out there and saying, all right, so the only real difference here is that this was pot still, there's some alternative yeast, alternative char, and we use some, uh, brewer's malt, right. But they have that, that background of that familiarity with that weeded bourbon and then they can taste that and they can go either they like it or they, at least, you know, they can see what the differences are and why you went the direction that you went.
4: And isn't that what it's fun about is talking about, you know, why you try doing something and what you're hoping to accomplish, what your vision is for it. And this is kind of like the 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 thing you're exploring. And, you know, as people hear that, they're like, oh, I kind of see that. And I, I find that interesting, you know, and whether or not it may be their flavor cup of tea, at least they get some respect for what you're trying to do. Because I think that when you have the producers out there that really want to do this and have a passion for it, you do have a vision of what you're tr- where you're trying to go and um you know and i think that's really what the part is that's the most fun about talking to people about whiskey
0: so what you're saying is bourbon fans are probably the most annoying <laughs> <laughs> we, <laughs> they're we the hardest that. to uh, and they're the the hardest to con- convince or whatever
4: at least i don't have to tell them <laughs> why i have to ma- why i can still make bourbon in virginia
3: you're the ones that get exactly. us out of bed in the morning is what it is. You're, you're the ones that like, I'm going to go show them today, by golly. <laughs>
0: just throwing darts at us, those damn corn lovers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I kind of got one one question to sort of start wrapping this up. And, and this is kind of looking back the pandemic here. And we all know that you had just mentioned earlier about a lot of distilleries dropped what they were doing, started making hand sanitizer. Government sometimes helps. Some government didn't really help. The fact that you're still here means that you, you you came out a little bit unscathed, but kind of talk about, you know, the past year and sort of like how you rode that wave and how you're coming out on the other side of it.
4: Do we curse? Go
1: for it, <laughs> <Right>. please. <laughs> because, I mean, this, this is the other thing is that we... Everybody kind of saw this as a as a boom for bourbon. I mean, Fred was talking about you know getting all the numbers from Drizzly every single week, and you know Bullet Bourbon was number one. We typically always had to come out on the roundtables that said, "Don't forget about your craft distillery. They really need you during this time." That's you know Drizzly's not always going to be delivering your your local craft whiskey. So, kind of talk about like this this past year and sort of how you came out.
4: You want to go first, Alan.
3: Sure, I'll throw in. For for us, we kind of just put our nose to the grindstone and went on went on about our business as much as anything. Um, you know, we I have been accused of um setting up tastings in people's basements for like five people the year before that, which is fine because I probably did, you know. I mean, I went to every event that was offered for two years because I like getting a paycheck, right? So keep the paychecks coming. Let's get this thing off the ground. That's fine. And I enjoy what I do. But the one thing that I think that we were uniquely suited for was that, you know, for a long time, on premise drove off premise. That was always the rule, right? You had to be in the bars, you had Uh to be in the well. But I don't think that that's been true for like the past four years, honestly. Um, I think that that changed a long time ago. And I think that the distillers that realized that that changed prior to the pandemic have all done. Okay, as long as they were able to cover operating costs and all that stuff and and figure out the distribution system. So for us, we had already started doing tons and tons of virtual stuff and tastings and podcasts and all that stuff was already kind of wrapped in. And so there was no learning curve for us going into pandemic. And it was really kind of um this sounds bad and I don't mean it in a bad way, but it was kind of a sigh of relief, like, oh, I don't have to go to that dude's basement this weekend. I can do that from my bedroom. (laughs) You know? So um, we were already kind of in that, in that sort of niche where we were able to adapt to that very easily. We've always tried to make sure that we have a very good online presence, um, individually and as a company as much as possible. And then, um, you know, we, we got some really great reviews. Fred gave us some fantastic reviews this fast, this last year. Um, I've actually, I've told, I've told Fred, I've accused him of trying to give me a heart attack a few times because I never, I never know what he's going to do or what he's going to say because it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, there's been a more than a few times I've watched a, a live video of somebody reviewing my stuff blindly against other stuff. And every time I hear a negative comment, I'm like, this asshole doesn't know what he's talking about <laughs> and something good happens. And I'm like, there's that pessimism thing again. Right. So, but, uh, that, I mean that those good reviews and that, that online presence for us, um, It was literally, there have been a couple times in the past year that it was zero to 60 overnight and just kind of spun my head and I didn't really know what to do with myself uh, in a lot of ways. I would even say that, to be honest with you, I think if it wasn't for COVID and the lockdowns, I don't think that Spirits of French Lick would be where it's at. I truthfully don't. I don't think we'd be anywhere near it. I think the pandemic actually helped us in a lot of ways.
2: Wow. And and you all both use Sealbox, right? Like you all are both on Sealbox. Yeah, how have uh you know, we're obviously very, you know, close with Blake, but you know, he does good work uh, you know, for everyone here. But what just tell us about like how Sealbox, you know, was last year in the pandemic.
3: Yeah, well, you know, Blake Blake picks a good barrel here and there, <laughs> for sure. But uh what what I, <laughs> he does what all I like right. about, Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I like about Blake is I can call Blake up and be like, Hey, uh, you know, we got we got uh even if it's a product that they normally wouldn't pick up. So, you know, maybe Fascination Street absinthe, you know, New American oak barrel aged absinthe, you know which I'm sure for most bourbon people are like, I think what the hell is, let's not go there, you know. But um, I can call him and I can say, hey, I've got, you know, 15 people online in different states that have asked for this product. Can you pick up a few cases of it? And Blake is usually more than willing to to play ball with something like that, even small numbers, which helps tremendously, you know, because that puts us in the hands of... um, for one thing, it puts us in the hands of non-bourbon drinkers and maybe those bourbon drinkers will then turn around if they like that absinthe and pick up some of the bourbons and maybe we can convert some of them back and forth. And uh, I just like to call and bullshit with Blake as much as anything. He's just uh, he's just a good guy. So but they've helped <laughs> us out that. tremendously. Yeah.
1: And Becky, what about you? You know, kind of talk about your your ride through this.
4: Right. So it was it was, you know, it was pretty, pretty weird, pretty weird time because for me. My attention had to be split for about three months, pretty much 50-50 between trying to manage the issue of sanitizer from an association perspective where I had just become president. It, well, I wasn't president officially yet, but it was like they were going because we were going to have our convention and then I was going to be president. But I was put in charge of the COVID task force for ACSA, so the Craft Spirits Association, And the first thing that we ran into was the sanitizer issue. And so one of the things that we did right away is when the committee that we had, we're all producers. So the first thing we did was seeing when this is coming and people are going to start doing this. It's all right. This could go south for people really quick if people start messing this up. And so what are the laws, how do we navigate it, and how? who do we talk to to make sure we need to get the right information? And then we need to pass that along to all these people doing it so that nobody does anything wrong, nobody gets sick, everybody stays legal, right? Because that could go really wrong for, for a lot of small businesses, and everybody wanted to help right away but you've got to be making sure that everything's right so one of the things i was doing pretty much every day was taking calls reading fda guidance navigating fda websites dear god i never thought i would have to do that in my (laughs) life and it's a nightmare by the way (laughs) and so that was going on and on one side and then the other side you know We looked at, basically, our on-premise business went down by about 70%. And that's pretty much average for every single distillery in Virginia. When you look at any of uh, the Virginia Distilling Association's members, down by 70% on-premise. And immediately there's zero tasting room business. And what was really interesting was that the Virginia ABC gave us the privilege to be able to ship to Virginia consumers, right, pretty quickly within a couple weeks. And what was really interesting to me is part of what we've been doing was looking at what does the data show about what that did for distilleries in Virginia? And what it showed was that, not only were they making more sales, essentially, than in their tasting room, at least the ones that, and most of the smaller ones, immediately jumped on this. And they would make releases specific for direct consumer. They would, you know, do shipping promotions. They would, you know, do email blasts, sending out, getting it to top of mind. But what was really interesting about it was that the same distilleries that then saw maybe 70% jumps in their tasting room they at the same time they saw 30% jumps in state stores so that from going down in state stores they actually did almost as well as the big brands in state stores and it's specifically because the direct to consumer shipping isn't really only about moving bottles it's about reminding people that you exist because Not everybody's going to want to pay to get a bottle of your whiskey shipped to them, especially if it's available at their local store. They're just now remembering you, though. And they'll say, oh, you know what? I'm going to pick up a bottle of Catoctin when I'm going to go get my, you know, I'm going to make a Boulevardier, so maybe I'll get some Campari and some vermouth, and I'm going to get the Catoctin instead of something else. And so for us, we really saw it as... And that's really informed kind of my advocacy about this because it's really just about bringing things to people's minds. So it trying to manage that during the past year. And then, of course, you do see you did see we did see, Um, you know, we had distributors drop us because you know what? They started pruning their pruning their books when the pandemic was partway through. So it's like, oh yeah, you're not moving as much as we want you to You're out. So then you're figuring out, okay, now I've got to find new distribution for this. So there's a lot of things, you know, um, I think Scott and I were talking to John Little not long ago and we were (laughs) kvetching a bit. And I said, you know, it does feel like you're working twice as hard for every bottle that you're selling. And, you know, we're, doing okay you know we didn't have to let anybody go we had to keep everything going but at the same time you know you're doing events at night you're doing you know you get up in the morning you're working the day you're doing two or three you know events and calls and and zooms and stuff and that's just the new was a new reality at that point you know and part of me is going to be kind of excited to go go see people at events again (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> and
1: not be up till, you know, 9 p.m. on a Tuesday trying to, you know.
4: <laughs> well, I'm always up till 9 p.m. on a Tuesday. I'm not my husband. He's in bed by 9.
3: <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if, if Becky had the same experience here, too. But the other thing that really kind of helped us with COVID a lot was, you know, the big guys started pulling back on their barrel selection programs. And we were lucky enough to be able to step in on that in a lot of cases and in a lot of states. And our barrel program really kicked off with COVID that's really what started the barrel program and it's it's been insane since then um, it hasn't slowed down it's picked up so
4: yeah I'd agree with that yeah mm-hmm. yeah you know um, I think there were not nearly as many picks out there and and a lot more people a lot more retailers specifically you know we had done a lot of barrel picks for um, restaurants or you know restaurant groups but those basically dried up but then on the other side, you saw more retailers picking up. You know, I think uh, restaurants are coming back. We're starting to see restaurants come back and start wanting to do some things and do some barrel picks and and do stuff. So I think ultimately, but I think, you know, the paradigm's changing in some ways. And ultimately, it'll probably be for, for the good, because I think that the old restaurant paradigm of $2 and change an hour and you live on tips may be finally going to be changing and people will recognize, you know, I think we, as a society, we have an addiction to cheap food, cheap drink. And a lot of times things are priced under what they should cost. If you really want to, you know, create a sustainable food system where people earn living wages and such. So I, I think, you know, maybe we all need to do a little less and do a little better I know that that's changed my consumption and uh, I, I drink less and drink better. I don't know if I can drink as good as some of these prices on some of these allocated things,
0: but.
1: <laughs> it's all right. I think you went pretty deep on us there. That That's some deep thoughts by Becky Harris. So we can.
0: <laughs> Phil- philosophical. Very much. It. Very much.
1: <laughs> but Becky and Alan, I want to say thank you again for coming on the show, really talking what is craft whiskey to people that are producing craft whiskey and not just a, a few different podcasters and an author. But, you know, we we talked about everything from pricing to grain selection. How do you make yourself different? You know, the government, we, we covered a lot of different things in here. And so this was a, it was a real pleasure to kind of get your take and, and your angle on on this side of the market. So thank you once again. So before we kind of close it out, uh, Becky, I'll let you go first. Just let people know uh, once again about Catoctin Creek and if they want to know more about you, where can they find you?
4: Yep. We're on every single platform at Catoctin Creek is would be our handle for social media and uh, CatoctinCreek.com. It's C-A-T-O-C-T-I-N-C-R-E-E-K. And uh, you can find us on all the socials and reach out anytime. Come and visit us in Northern Virginia.
3: And Alan? Yeah, you can find me at uh, SpiritsOfFrenchLick.com. Also, all of our products at Sealbox.com. Uh We're on pretty much all the social media as well. You can also find my social media where I do a lot of posting every day about you know different things we're doing around the distillery and those sorts of things. And then if you're interested in Indiana distilling history, alchemistcabinet.wordpress.com.
2: And I will vouch for Alan's quality rants on Facebook. So give him a follow on Facebook. (laughs) Good high quality ranter that Alan is.
3: Don't don't check my Facebook if you're easily offended because eventually you're going to get mad at it's the way it is
1: (laughs) but once again thank you all for joining make sure you follow them you can find all their products at Sealbox and also thank you once again for helping support this podcast we definitely greatly appreciate it and follow Bourbon Pursuit wherever you get your podcasts also go follow our good friend Fed Minnick on his own YouTube channel but with that I want to say cheers everybody and we'll see you all next week